Hello and welcome to the GXM podcast where we explore the news and topics surrounding video game music and the intersection between the games and music industries. We aim to publish fortnightly, so if you haven't already, please be sure to hit that subscribe button and also share this podcast with people you think will be into it. My name is Matt Ombler. I am Head of Games and Music Partnerships at video game soundtrack label Laced Records, and I have come from my former life as a freelance games journal specialising in video game music. Joining me is my co-host Tom Quillfelt, who also works for soundtrack label Laced Records and podcasts with the Kane and Rinse crew. Tom, thank you for letting me handle introduction responsibilities this week. It I liked it. <laughs> you're, you're very welcome. Well, we can't always it, it can't always be southern oriented. We need a bit of uh, northern uh, introduction. We've got a, a nice energetic northern intro this week <laughs> with my dulcet Yorkshire voice. Um, what have you been playing, listening to, or generally consuming the content of this week, Matt? I played it. I played Air Twister. <laughs> I played it and it is this is Air Twister is the the game with the prog rock kind of queen soundtrack that we both absolutely love in a in a non-ironic way I'd say as well as a bit of cheeky irony in there. It's a uh, aerial shooter in the style of Space Harrier from Arcade Days Gone but it has the most insane presentation there are you ride on the back of swans. There are crazy, huge air bosses. It's very, it's quite a simple game uh, on Apple Arcade, and uh, yeah, that, that prog rock soundtrack by Valencia sits about as weirdly with the game as you would imagine it to. It, it, it is, it's like playing LSD or something. It is absolutely bonkers. I recommend everyone, if they have Apple Arcade, to just check it out for five minutes. It's, it's immediately fun, but also quite you know, put downable uh, quite quickly. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that was hilarious. Let's drop a quick clip in so you can all listen to... It's probably quite a lazy description, but I think this is literally what if Queen wrote the soundtrack for a video game. Take a listen. I've had a boring week. I've just been playing too much Baldur's Gate 3. And in terms of new stuff that I listen to, I think it gets about as weird and exciting as me saying I've discovered a video from 1999 of NSYNC singing the Pokemon rap. I've also got a clip of music going round and round and round in my head because I've spent about 20 hours working on, well, just sort of learning after effects for some fun, silly uh, Laced Records uh, marketing videos. 
And I always start with the music clip because then I can cut, you know, cut angles to it and cut cut things to that. But I can't say what it is because um, it's not ready to announce yet. But I will come back on that because I've listened to the same 30 second clip of music so often now. But I do think it is a masterwork. And um, yeah, I can't wait to share that very silly video with people that I've spent way too much time on. <laughs> we can't we can't say what it is but i've seen the video it's brilliant and i think it's fair to say without giving anything away this is a release that a lot of people are going to be very excited for hopefully so hopefully so shall we get on to the news Starting off with a bit of a sad one, um, another round of industry layoffs in the games industry, this time at Bungie, who are best known for their work, obviously on Halo in times long gone, but also Destiny. After Bungie announced the latest rounds of layoffs, fans started to notice something weird. Longtime series composer Mike Salvatore who also worked on Halo alongside Marty McDonnell. Um, the websites for him and his fellow Destiny composer, Michael Sechrist, they'd been updated to remove references of their work on Destiny um, and also with a weird line saying, Gone Fishing, which I believe is an old Halo nod, I think, or I've seen that before. I don't know if it's just a common phrase but anyway um fans started looking into this news eventually came out that indeed salvatore had left bungie i'm not a big destiny player i played it for a couple of months when the game after like shortly after the game came out uh, but i'm very familiar with his music in the game he's kind of like one of the veterans there and with that it is fair to assume also probably one of the highest paid employees there um, there's multiple rumors circulating about how and why he was laid off some claiming he was laid off while others such as windows central reporter jess corden saying that he might have retired voluntarily that obviously we've got no way of knowing uh, but something that i do want to read out really quickly is um the video game reporter for forbes a guy called paul tassie reached out to mike to try and get the lowdown and mike responded with the following words, which, and this is coming from me, like I've, I've interviewed Mike in the past and he is absolutely lovely. And I think the quote that he gives to Paul here is just a really good summary of his character. Hi, Paul. Thanks for reaching out to me and for your kind words. The last 24 hours have been crazy and I'm still sorting through my feelings. Many of my good friends were also let go and I feel awful for them. My heart goes out to everyone who lost their job yesterday. Regarding myself, the overwhelming feeling I have is one of gratitude. Beginning in 1997, Bungie provided me with the opportunity to contribute music to some of the most amazing games ever made. I've been truly blessed to work with so many awesome creative people over the years. I've learned so much from them, not only as a composer, but as a human being during my time there. One of the things that I always loved about being part of the team was our willingness to take risks, which has always been a part of Bungie's DNA. And when we would fall, we wouldn't retreat. We'd reload. This is at the heart of what kept me engaged year after year through success and failure. 
I truly wish the best for my friends who are still there, and I have no doubt that they will be able to right the ship. To the fans, please don't hate on them. Give them a chance to blow you away like they've done so many times before. Peace to all, Mike. I mean, that's that's lovely, considering the circumstances. What do you think of this? Yeah, that's very diplomatic wording. I mean, yeah, I was a I played Destiny originally. I played a little bit of Destiny 2. The um, CEO of Bungie actually in a town uh, hall meeting it reportedly said that um, interest in Destiny 2 had been soft. Yeah, it, very sad that, that if Mike was sort of still had work to get on with there and, and that was cut short. But uh, I've always loved the Destiny soundtracks. Absolutely incredible work. That kind of prog rock orchestral with a bit of synth stuff and just rich and heavy and weighty they do do weighty well don't they Bungie? everything you know the gun feel the gameplay uh, and the music as well so basically it's fair to say that live service games i think across the industry are facing a whole raft of challenges right now but i'll tell you what aren't facing challenges, video <laughs> game concerts. <laughs> <laughs> Great segue. So um, last year, uh, Gareth Coker very kindly invited a couple of the Laced uh, crew down to Abbey Road while he was doing an orchestral um, recording session, which was absolutely wonderful. And I uh, met and chatted to Mateusz and Marta Pavlak, from Poland, who are two of the people who organise Game Music Festival. And they had decided that year to hold their concert um, in London instead of uh, somewhere in Europe or in Poland. And there were sort of various reasons behind that, you know, the sort of getting the internationality of it and um, wanting to spread out, I guess. Or That year, last year, they would did the Cuphead concert and they did an Ori concert which obviously Gareth Coker's music uh, is uh, he's the composer for those games and they were both wonderful wonderful events and this year they announced uh, again two stunner games really going for the throat with these ones Uh, so on the 4th of May 2024 in London again at the Festival Hall they have got two concerts one in the afternoon at 1pm for The Last of Us and Gustavo Santolaya will be there um, he'll also be doing a masterclass for VIP ticket holders um, and I believe that will be part of the kind of they have like an educational um, element of the day they sort of hold panels and things on the same day that the concerts are and then in the evening uh, at 7pm they're doing a Baldur's Gate 3 concert and the amazing thing about that is that it took a day and sold out 2,700 tickets or so, um, which is incredible, you know, incredible reassurance for Gay Music Festival, the organisers. And, you know, I mean, Baldur's Gate 3 has been out a while on early access, but this year it has absolutely exploded the hype around it just the quality of the game, the critical reception. And this is a year we got, you know, an incredible Zelda game, you know, multiple incredible games, Resident Evil, Diablo, etc., etc. Um, and Baldur's Gate 3 will probably top a lot of Game of the Year lists. Um, and I would say what we know from Laced is that often the quality of the music takes a backseat. And it's just silly to say because the quality of the music in Baldur's Gate 3 is incredibly excellent by Borislav Slavov. But the popularity of a game, um, the popularity of an IP or a series can 
sell vinyl, it can shift concert tickets, um, even if the music itself wouldn't draw a broader mainstream um, audience. But uh, fantastic, um, successful game music festival here selling that out. Um, and I believe at the time of recording, anyway, the Last of Us concert still has uh, tickets tickets to sell. Um, it's the Philharmonia Orchestra and uh, Hertfordshire Chorus who are singing in the Baldur's Gate 3 concert and uh, just the Philharmonia for The Last of Us. Um, Matt, are you going to grab a ticket? I have kindly been offered tickets, so I will be in attendance, which is a good thing I've managed to get tickets because I did not expect well i maybe suspected they'd sell out eventually but i think for Baldur's gate three to sell out a 2700 cap venue in 24 hours like that's absolutely wild you know what i mean like tickets for these concerts as well like they're not cheap they're reasonably the reasonably priced of course for the experience that you get but they're certainly like not cheap compared to normal gig tickets so i, I think it's great and honestly as i've said to you I feel like I've got an illness where I cannot stop playing Baldur's Gate 3. It is genuinely <laughs> one of the best games that I've ever played. So, Ima Noon, who is no stranger to the world of video game concerts, of course, she is a video game composer and acclaimed conductor herself. She's composed music for World of Warcraft, which is probably her most famous game amongst many others. Um, the concert series is called Video Games in Concert with Ima Noon. Really good program with some quite, I think it's fair to say, unusual choices. Resident Evil 5, for example, not a game that often pops up at these video game concerts, but also music from the ones you might expect, such as The Last of Us, Kingdom Hearts, uh, Witcher 3, also many more. I am very happy to say <laughs> that we have some dates outside of London, which for me living in Hull is absolutely fantastic. So there are four dates that have been announced so far. We have Brighton on the 11th of May. We have Wolverhampton on the 17th of May, Manchester on the 18th of May, and Bournemouth on the day after, 19th of May. And these all take place next year. If you are interested in checking those dates out and buying tickets, we will whack a link into the description. But we also have some more news on Ema News, don't we? Ema News. Let me do that again. Sorry, sorry. Ema News. We also have some... Yeah, Ema News. <laughs> Ema, Ema Noon in the news. We also have some more news on Ema Noon, don't we? We do. Just uh, that uh, Gamer Fest Dublin gave her the Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, which I thought was very nice uh, because she's been around. She's She's done so much for game music. She's been a huge champion and for video games as well in general. Uh, I just thought that was a really nice uh, announcement. Right. Are you ready to get geeky? Well, inevitably, inevitably, there's a some kind of tie-in song with some kind of pop <laughs> artist or virtual artist. doesn't matter whether they exist in reality or not. Um, go on, Matt. What's, what's Hatsune Miku uh, been up to? While most people know Sega for all of those big names... A lot of people don't realise that Sega has an incredibly popular mobile game called Hatsune Miku Project Diva Megamix. It's a rhythm game, um, and if you're wondering who Hatsune Miku is, it is essentially a Vocaloid, so like a Vocaloid slash virtual idol slash internet celebrity that there's loads of different ways you can break this down but all you need to know is she is incredibly popular despite the fact that technically 
she doesn't exist. Anyway, the game did a crossover with the Pokemon company, which I think is notable because it's indicative of the Pokemon company kind of flexing its muscles in music, right? We've seen collaborations with Katy Perry and Post Malone. We've also seen a lot of collaborations this year with Universal Music Japan. So there's a lot that Pokemon is doing in the music world right now. But listen to this. The collaboration originally started with 18 illustrations where Hatsune Miku was basically redesigned in the style of certain Pokemon trainers. So what if she was an energy Pokemon trainer? What if she was like a rock gym trainer kind of thing, just to give it like a different style and appearance? Um, to complement those illustrations, they've also released 18 music tracks. Just to throw some quick stats at you quickly, the game was already making a lot of money for Sega. It basically counts. Sega have released a lot of their games on mobile as well, right? So Streets of Rage, Sonic the Hedgehog, all of these old games you can buy on mobile. Probably fair to say that Hatsune Miku generates about 80% of the company's revenue on mobile, and it's only been out for like a couple of years. It's massive. It was making, on average, according to data from Sensor Tower, um, a couple of hundred thousand a day, which obviously is not small by any means. When the Pokemon collaboration kicked off with the music songs going into the game on the 28th of September, daily revenue jumped over the next couple of days to over 2 million. There were literally like a couple of days during this collaboration where this game was making 2 mil every day, which is absolutely wild. I'm not going to try and describe or break down or analyse the type of music that they've been doing for this collaboration. It is super weird. <laughs> a lot of the collaborations are with other Vocaloids. Yeah, this is like it, it was too weird for me, and I love weird. I like it. It's it's like it's it's like hyper pop. Do you know what I mean? Is that a fair way of this? Yeah, I feel like we're in a new era of really over the top like anime music and stuff like that. I mean, that's a lot of money. Is uh, is this game available in the UK? Do you know? Yeah, so it's a weird one. The game is available in the UK, um, but no one really cares about it in the UK. Um, it is absolutely massive in japan just because that's where hatsune miku is most popular so it's basically making absolute bank in japan mobile games are generally more popular in japan anyway um, there is a separate version of the game with a different name that's available on pc and steam if you're curious check it out um it's a decent rhythm game for what it's worth but yeah the music in it is like what you would expect from a Japanese rhythm game developed by Sega and based on a Vocaloid. Do you know what I mean? Like it is, it is super intense. <laughs> Okay, so for this week's topic, 
Um, I was watching the Save and Sound Online Music Festival by Bedtime Digital Games a few weeks ago, and a chap called Jonas Turner did the most amazing kind of breakdown of interactive music systems. And he, he set his stall out to, to really briefly, but really in-depth and um, intelligently. And I just thought it was such a brilliant way of talking about it. And I reached out to him and we had a chat a couple of weeks ago about his latest project, Go Mecha Ball. He's also worked on an absolute ton of popular indie games. I've always, I followed on him on Twitter for quite a while. He's very he's one of those people in the industry who just loves to share, loves to show, loves to explain, and I think that's such a valuable thing, especially for any younger um, sound designers, composers who are interested in the the kind of the implementation of music within the game, the real nitty gritty. So that's basically what I wanted to chat to him about, and uh, that's what you're going to hear next. Most people would have heard some of your work if they'd been paying any attention to the indie scene. Particularly, I guess, Devolver Digital Games, in a way, there's kind of Downwell, Broforce, Cult of the Lamb, that kind of thing. But also some huge titles in the in the indie world, Spelunky 2, Nuclear Throne. For you, when you get to the opportunity to work on either one of just music or just sound effects or you get the the opportunity to do both together are you always thinking about how they fit together or are you just kind of throwing stuff together and then you balance it later on in terms of music's place in the in the mix versus sound effects oh that's a very good question actually i also do guest lecturing at schools and uh like various other kind of educational stuff. Mm. That's a key point I give. I see music in video games. There's two separate branches I see. One is music as music. So you have just call music. Or you have music for games. <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh, music driving a function instead of just being cool. I personally, when I play games, I enjoy games where the music is a functional part of the game. We are experiencing a video game. I personally enjoy that the most. And that's how I tend to think when I work on games making music. Is there a key example that you tend to bring up and and show examples to people? I mean, of course, there's the classic. Let's say you are playing something like Skyrim, for example. You have, you know, exploration music, battle happens, now you have battle music. That's already a simple example of kind of music working as a thing inside the game. Small things like that already do a, a huge thing, in my opinion. But then there are games like Ape Out. Yes, yeah. Where you are essentially playing the music when you play the game. And when I played that the first time, I was just, my eyes and my ears opened. I was like, whoa. 
this is incredible. So how I kind of tackle this is, it depends on the technical limits of the engines we are using to make the game, the tools that we are using to make the game. So one example would be when I made my first commercial game, like my person, like my, my game, a game called Tormentor X Punisher, where I was the game designer. In that, I was also made the music and sounds for. I actually calculated kind of I tapped on a metronome, like what is a good tempo for the game? Once I found that tempo, I would make everything in that tempo. All the songs are the same tempo. Then things like machine gun fires at kind of sub intervals of the tempo. So if music is like gang, 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 then the machine gun would be like ta 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 But yeah, I would do things like that. I'm, I wouldn't grid that, so it's not in a grid. So you can shoot whenever in the game, but just the fact that, that, that it is in a certain kind of pattern, it kind of creates these um, little rhythmic things, like almost like polyrhythms, almost, inside the game. And that already feels way better than having the machine gun fire at some random interval that doesn't fit with the music, which you can also use as an informative tool. So this is kind of where the thinking kicks in. So let's say the player shoots always in tempo. What if the enemy shoots in some random off tempo so that they don't actually fit the music? So they already sound like it's something outside, outside, you know, it's informative. You're like, oh, something's happening because it's not in this pulse I am in. So I've started to think of things like that in Tormentor X Punisher, which I kind of consider my first kind of proper music sound gig in games where I made both. I mean, I've done it before, but that was kind of the first kind of major one, I would I would argue. Uh, in terms of music structurally, just, just melodies, harmonies, you know, presumably in that case, you were thinking so carefully about everything all together as the kind of solo game developer and, and there's been a few break you know stardew valley undertale that kind of thing where the where the developer is also the composer and yours sounds very kind of tightly carefully woven together H how much did you do you think that affected the what the actual musicality like instrument choices and harmony choices and did you make a soundtrack album for that game afterwards where you kind of listened to the music on its own and were you personally able to kind of enjoy the music without those other elements there? How I like to think is indeed kind of how everything ties together, how to make a coherent world, like uh, audio or audio visually. How do you make everything coherent and work together? Let's say with Tormentrix Punisher, um, I thought that the music, like the more rhythmic it is, it gives me more leeway to kind of do this stuff. It's loud music, lots of heavy guitars, heavy drums and stuff, heavy synthesizers and so on and so on. But if you listen to it carefully, you notice it's very transient -y. Like there's lots of kind of pulses and like you kind of hear that. So I could like put sounds around it kind of easily, even though it's very loud music, but there's actually a lot of room for sounds.
but it also works as music alone. It's metal music, after all, <laughs> or like industrial metal music, whatever. Yeah. People often say Doom 2016 is an is a easy-to-reach-for example of kind of popular game soundtrack and also that kind of ballet of violence. And it's something that Hotline Miami did, of course, and Tor- Torment X Punisher is, I'd say, that ballet of violence sub-sub-genre. Yeah. Is it easier to work in that kind of ballet of violence arena when you're getting started tying these things together? Is, is it easier to do it in that genre with metal than, a, I don't know, a floaty orchestral, you know, dreamscape? fantasy game yeah i mean i sadly no one can see my webcam right now but i'm kind of smiling a bit smirking a bit because <laughs> i personally do think so yeah because <laughs> <laughs> like if you dissect the music like metal music at its very core it has i think two things that stick out to me one is just the raw energy you know it's you're like oh like you're already going yeah it's aggressive yeah yeah it's energy and then the other thing that i feel like is what makes it kind of easy ish to tie into games is the transient nature of the music like you have drums like like you hear a clear hit there's a clear kind of thing to follow punchy drums like techno could be the similar Mm, and techno is also i feel like an easy way and that's why a lot of video game music uses techno i would argue maybe even but metal and techno in the end they are (laughs) this is going to be controversial ish i think metal and techno are the same music but different instruments essentially yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and it's it's where you get say someone like Darren Baronofsky working on on Crypto the Necro Dancer, mm-hmm. anything that's kind of four to the floor, easy for the audience to find the pulse. I think as well. Yeah, like I mean that's why that's why people like electronic dance music, isn't it? It's because it's predictable. People know where the beat's going to be, and that that that's a reliable thing. It makes me think actually. I don't know if anyone's tried it with like Indian tabla or or classical Indian music. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a difficult project, I think, but but super interesting uh, potentially. Someone will someone will have a go at some point, I reckon. People have done that, like experimented with that. Actually, talking about doom. Uh, I think Mick did experiment with that on, what was the game called? Atomic Heart? Oh, yes, yeah. Or something similar. And I also kind of experimented in something similar-ish with uh, Scorespringer. There's one uh, level where I use this weird kind of... I play around with time signatures, and I have like... kind of stuff happening. Kind of rhythmic... Um, counting happening in the background, sneakily. It's funny because it also makes me think of Boomerang X, which is another, Mm -hmm. obviously, um, Devolver title. Maybe Devolver are secretly 
you know, the place to go if you want to experiment with, uh, with, <laughs> with aggressive uh, music and, and game design. Yeah, I mean, they sure have the image for it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the project you've been working for two years, Go Mecha Ball, is the one that, that you were talking so um, excellently about in this online festival clip. Um, how did you get involved with that project in the first place? Uh, the unfortunate thing that happened back in 2020... Uh, these lockdowns and the whole pandemic thing. When that kicked off, I remember being kind of stressed out, like, oh no, what's going to happen with work and stuff. An irrational thought in the sense that my line of work in video games is very, you know, people working at home yes. <laughs> kind of a thing. Yeah. I started booking projects. I was like, oh man, like, if half of these projects like don't happen, at least I'll have some money to live on. But as uh, <laughs> as uh, my chance had it, um, none of these projects got cancelled. Even some old projects kicked up their uh, production schedules. <laughs> and I, oh, this pains me to even think about it. So in the year 2020, I worked on roughly... Was it 16 games Whoa. at the same time? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> it is unhealthy. It was not good. It was really bad for me, actually. Uh, so yeah, 16 games. That meant roughly about three games a day I would work on scheduled. Oh my god. Yeah, that was not very nice. Um, oh man i'm just thinking of those times i was really tired like i would work at mornings i would choose a project during the day i would work on another project and then evening until going to sleep i would work on a third project oh my gosh (laughs) yeah it really sucked so i was feeling naturally kind of burnt out come 2021 i was kind of stretching myself i had like a couple projects remaining and I was like, I'll just see these to the end and then see if... I was just, you know, tired. I was thinking about even quitting working in games for a while. Just, you know, to do something else. I was not really feeling it. So I started to kind of not hate my job. That's the wrong term. But, you know, just being tired of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I decided to take, like, almost a year off. Like, money-wise, I could just about make it. So I was like, hey, I want to just, you know take some time off and do whatever I want and rest. And about the time when I started to take some time off, uh, an old work colleague from another project reached out to me like, hey, we are working on this cool thing. Like, we want to join our Discord and check it out. And I was like, ah, I, mm, uh, I don't know. Like, kind of, you know, I'm planning on taking a year off. And he's like, no, no, just come over and check it out. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do it, like, for you, for you, I'll come and check it out. Cool, cool person. So this was, this was uh, Felipe Martins, who's the concept artist of Go Ball. So I jump in, and I love his style. He has an incredibly cool style as a concept artist, or artist. And I jump into Discord, and I check the game, and I'm just, like, eyes open. I'm like, what? This is super cool. And I tried the game, and it played amazingly. And I was like, wow, I could feel kind of ideas brewing in my head. And I'm like, yeah, I will. I want to definitely be a part of this. But I want to take a half a year off. Like, I cut my idea of a year off to half a year off. 
But during that half a year break, before starting my work properly on the project, I would do kind of small demos on the game, like when I felt like it. I would kind of try out, like experiment with music stuff, experiment with sound stuff to see things that might fit. Just for people who don't know, so Go Megaball is an acrobatic action roguelite where you shoot, roll and boost your way through a futuristic wonderland. At a glance, I would say it reminds me of something like Hades, but but obviously Hades with its its Greek gods setting and this is completely this is a futuristic setting and there's guns and there's shooting and there's it's like Marvel Madness versus Hades or something. It, it immediately is very colourful, looks like a ton of fun. Was it sort of never a question that you would just take care of every aspect of the audio and music was it just sort of there for the taking for you yeah so you say you you you're doing experiments you're doing little demos and things has that been your experience on the whole game is just sort of very experimental and and gradually piecing your way bit by bit to approaching a final audio overlay yeah what kind of grabbed me in the game was at first when i played it i was like this interesting and like the very first prototype thing that they showed me and I was like, wow, this is interesting. But then I realized that something feels different in this game. And I kind of asked about technical details of the game. And then I learned that the game is procedural. Like the animations are procedural. The AI works in its own interesting way. I haven't really worked on a game like that before. Uh, where, you know, limbs can twist and turn in whatever way they want to. So that already kind of started brewing ideas in my head, like, okay, I cannot make, let's say a mech is walking. I cannot just make a generic walk sound, like on top of an animation. Because what if the limbs turn differently? What if a step doesn't take you, um, a random example, like half a second, what if it takes you 30 milliseconds? Like, these are things that can happen in the game. Um, everything is procedural and kind of somewhat, I guess, generative in that sense. Mm. So it's a different way of working on a game, different way of thinking about the game, because everything is suddenly more alive, and I need to cater to that. So in my experiments, I would kind of figure out ways how to cater to that thinking. In my mind, I had decided for them (laughs) that I will make both the sounds and the music and I will tie these together they will work as a single unit together you can separate music and the sounds you know from the options but the ideal experience is having both let's add music in because I wanted to cater this randomness that's happening in the game in both the sounds and the music. And then the sounds affect the music and the music affect the sounds. It's almost weird to separate them in that circumstance. It's just the soundtrack, isn't it? It might be Richard Vreeland, Disaster Piece, was talking about uh, Mini Metro, the first one, and how like making a, a music soundtrack from that would be very difficult because it's just so driven by the gameplay. I think you do have kind of more traditional music in here than, say, a game like that where it's almost into, it's kind of musical sound design. So that was a thing I pondered about because one of my early experiments that I don't think I even sent 
onwards was that I kind of tried to make it more um, kind of granular like that, more artsy, but it just didn't feel right for the game. I knew it needs to have like a driving, like a feeling of a driving song, like a song that goes onward. Yeah. But I didn't want to just have like, I just didn't want like linear tracks. To me personally, it didn't feel like a thing that would fit the game as well due to its rapid action. And instead I decided, hey, I'm going to make the music so that all the instruments are separate. So we have drums, bass, melodies and stuff as their own tracks inside our sound middleware called FMOD or FMOD Studio. I would make lots of different options per instrument. So let's say drums might have anything from five up to ten options that they can be. So instead of like, now I play the game, the music starts, it's next time it might be you know, I've changed the rhythms. So it kind of goes back to Fruity Loops in a way. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah like a variation engine for small, small loops. But you're creating everything, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wanted that, and that happens with every instrument. So essentially one song technically is over 7,000 songs. It's <laughs> 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 uh, like one of six to the power of five or something. I can't remember how it went. If you release a 7,000 song uh, Spotify <laughs> RST, I think it would probably do quite well royalty-wise. <laughs> no, no, no. But um, indeed, um, after my summer holiday, I'll be making the soundtrack version of the music, which is, you know, I'm going to make them into a linear form song, which is essentially me creating a new song based on all these clips that, you know, I use inside the video game. But I'll just take those and compose new songs out of those uh, building blocks yeah. to hopefully get a interesting soundtrack. But yeah, that was my idea uh, to kind of make the music from blocks like that because that enables me to control and mix and mangle the tracks like on a per layer basis. So for example, in Go Mecha Ball, you can walk around as a mech or roll around as a ball. Both of these states mix the music differently. So when you're in mech, you have kind of more open music, like more uh, high-end instruments and stuff. They kind of become more alive. The equalizer kind of opens up the upper range a bit. As soon as you go into a ball, I cut down the higher frequencies a bit and lower the higher frequency instruments. And I boost the bass a bit. So you have this more kind of a thing happening in the music to kind of, indicate rolling a bit more and as the height tones are cut now you hear enemies uh, like uh, attack tones and warnings and stuff like you get more informative sounds when you're rolling because usually when you're a mech you'll be shooting so that's when i want to kind of give you more focus on the shooting but when you roll around that's when you get like even more informative kind of sounds pop up
It reminds me of interviewing Olivier de Riviere, and I'm sure you've mm -hmm. come across his work a lot. You two both being obsessed with uh, interactive music and the, the possibilities and all the different triggers and things. And he was saying about uh, Dying Light 2, the whole point of the game is they were trying to encourage players to stay on the rooftops and like run constantly as a parkour like being on the ground not good being you know not moving not good in that game and so he did a lot of work to make the music rewarding as you got faster and you're doing more parkour moves and you were higher up and you were getting a kind of a nicer version of the score and the music's reacting to you so it's kind of nudging players in a certain direction by audibly you know rewarding them for certain gameplay actions and it sounds like you're doing the same th thing here not that um in go mecha ball it sounds like there's a sort of a bad state and a good state it's more like exactly as you say like different information is important in those different kind of attack states i mean presumably you spend all your time thinking about how is this going to make a player feel? How's the overall mix? Does it feel crunchy and good? And does it add to gameplay and game feel? Exactly. Yes. Yes, exactly. How do you know if you've achieved that? Do, do you get other people to tell you? Yeah, it's actually... Um, this is going to sound maybe slightly narcissistic of me. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I do play and reference the game to other people's uh, other people like uh, I have a friend group of like video game composers and sound designers that I might you know send a video of the game to and be like hey what do what do you think and they would tell me but I kind of believe that in a lot of ways I am the best person to also say it as long as I'm not happy I know it's not good because <laughs> I play a lot of games and I reference a lot of games and I kind of keep a standard to if I'm not feeling it I don't think anyone else is going to feel it is there a recent game or, or maybe even an older game where the gameplay the sound design and the music just felt like it was elevating the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay in a really kind of tactile way the immediate one I have in mind is because this is my kind of reference game with Go Mecha Ball, or one of them. Actually, no, I'll say two. Um, <laughs> so, Overwatch by Blizzard. When I hear Overwatch and I play the game, it's kind of like Call of Duty-ish, but it's more family-friendly version. I don't know if that makes sense. Like the yeah, when you shoot in Overwatch, it sounds nice, but it's not. It's not violently visceral. It's less militaristic, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more kind of designery in a sense. something that I could imagine hearing on a, let's say, a well-made, uh, you know, Disney movie or something. I kind of get that kind of a more... I, that's kind of just the internal feeling I get from it. I'm not saying that's what it is, but that's kind of what how I take it in. Or something like Wall-E. I see Overwatch more like Wall-E. But then my other inspiration was Call of Duty. Modern Warfare 2019, because that's visceral then again. I like the visceral feeling of how things shoot 
and punch. So I kind of started to chase these, the sound, kind of the feeling of the sound from these games combined. But I n noticed or realized that when you play these games, there is no music, which made it hard for me to keep them as references because I would only hear sound effects. But when you play the games, you don't have music on top when you play the game. Only in the beginning of the level and the end of the level. Interesting. I never noticed that. I haven't played a, a modern Call of Duty for, you know, so that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about multiplayer gameplay. Yeah. Kind of, that's more in line to what Gome Cabal would be like when things get hectic. But yeah, there's no music there, which is surprising. Kind of hit me at one point when I tried to mix Gome Cabal. I was like, why can't I get the music and sounds to work together? I'm doing everything I can. And then I realized, wait, I'm referencing games that don't do this. So I had to take them aside as references. They acted as good starting points. So then I started looking into other stuff like Doom and uh, 2016 and Eternal. And what else? I mean, there's a huge bunch of games I started taking in. One of the main inspirations that kind of stuck out to me was Super Mario 3D Land and 3D World. And those became, especially 3D World, became like almost my main inspiration in the end. that has music and sound effects and they also do interactive stuff which I didn't realize before but now as I played it with more analytical ears I noticed that hey they are, they are actually doing things here like why aren't people talking about these things that they're doing they're doing some very amazing stuff as well you say that and I can just hear da -da -da -da, da -da 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 -da. I just hear that <laughs> violin riff going round and round as my kids can only play the first level <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. know that game just from hearing a few seconds of it exactly. and you know it was 3d world as well specifically that's what i love about games like that's why i want to create games from like an original standpoint like i want to create everything from the source recordings to the edits and you know the final products i want to be original designed for the game because uh, I love that. Yeah, and, and that's why you decided to video the the foley work you did, or the or, or or the fan sound recordings you did on this game. Because I presume you you expected you were going to do a lot of it. Yes. And it was going to be a really good showcase of of your talents later on. Every project I do the same thing. I kind of design, do a design document, and then I that's kind of like my so called uh, like design bible or guidance for the project. I do that for every project I worked on. But the reason why I want to record the source stuff for Go Make a Ball is like, A, I love to watch making of documentaries and I wanted to make like a good one. And B, the reason I do this is how I learned like before school and during school was by watching making of documentaries. There was this webpage called uh, Soundworks Collection, is it? Something like that. So they have a lot of like making of documentaries, both videos and written and maybe even a podcast. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But I watched the videos. So I look at these videos and I look at, okay, what kind of gear do you have around? Why? Why is it there? 
and what kind of microphones, how far are they, and stuff like that. I would just look at these videos and also I would quickly notice that a lot of these videos were faked. <laughs> like, uh, you know, let's show some making of, and, you know, at the time of making, which I understand, they haven't done it, so they kind of recreate it. But then you notice, like, small things, like, hey, your phantom power is off. Like, kind of stuff like that. Oh, yeah, it's like the guitar being unplugged on uh, Top of the Pops or something, yeah. Yeah, 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 you kind of start noticing, oh, wait, this is, hmm. I understand they were working, they might have not have time to set up a camera and stuff. When I recorded these videos, I also have a commentary. Uh, I started doing this naturally. I wasn't supposed to talk while doing work. But I started talking and I started explaining why I have the microphone here, why am I doing it like this. Because I want to make it more into a kind of an educational video in a sense to show people that hey you can do this too just do it like this is how I do it use whatever you can use from what I'm telling you but take it into your own direction because me as a a player of video games or consumer of uh, entertainment I love to play games that kind of make me go wow what is this like hearing something new, like ape, like when I played Ape Out, I heard the music system without knowing about it. I was just blown away. And I was actually on an airplane when I played it. And I put like headphones on and I was like, whoa, just like jaw open like this. I haven't experienced this before. I was completely taken by it. It's easy to impress people with graphics over the years you know you always get a shiny driving game at the beginning of a console generation you went unreal 5 stuff started coming out it's easy to kind of put a lot of clips on twitter and stuff and and audio understandably it's a harder sell to just casual gamers to like audio laymen how i see it is it is a entertainment cultural thing as soon as you kind of teach and show people a thing and they get it, they will get it. Like, let's say Wilhelm Scream is a good example, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Ah, the gun we yell. Yeah. It's more like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you tell that to people and you show it and people hear it and they're like, oh yeah, that thing. And then you see like video compilations of the same yell in Star Wars, Indiana Jones, whatever else. Or Call of Duty even. You show that and people, they recognize it. Or like in like jazz music, you have this so-called the lick, like kind of a thing. When you show that to people, they kind of learn it, and then they start kind of spotting it, and you know it teaches them something. And it, now they know this audio thing, and it's similar with visuals. Like we talk about slow motion, like people know how to say like motion blur, all these things. They are very kind of apparent and obvious to us because we know what it is, and we've been always taught what it is. But, you know, if you just told some random person about motion blur, they would look at you like, I'm not sure kind of what you mean. Like, from the name, I can kind of parse something together, but I don't know what motion blur is. But then you show it in games and stuff, now they know what motion blur is. It's the same with audio, but I don't really see that happening in audio. And I feel like, for the culture, it's good to kind of start showing people these things. So they learn about these things, then they start understanding the importance of audio. Like, if you think about it, audio is... I kind of hate to pay, put it in percentages, but, uh, you know, half is what you see and half is what you hear. By video games, you also have, you know, the actual playability, you triggering the actions. Sound is important, because with sound, you can tell the player that someone's behind you. 
something's behind that door, for example, that's harder to do visually. It's both technical and emotional mm -hmm. um, in the same way that with graphics, you have technical graphics and then you have, you know, art concept and, and design and character design and et cetera, et cetera, kind of color palette, that kind of thing. Because in audio, it's, it's not just like, oh, I can tell you something's behind the door, but you can say, and you're in a spooky basement and you're supposed to feel scared or actually this is a comedy moment and something's going to burst out at you, but don't worry, it's not going to be that scary because the music is telling you this is a comedy moment, etc., etc. So it's quite, it's an important job. So, I mean, you've taken on a lot with, uh, with Go Mecha Ball. You must be happier to do that on a project with a where you you're sure of what the scope of the overall scope of the game is presumably you you might be less willing to do absolutely everything yourself if it was a sort of giant i don't know open world game with lots of cutscenes and um, lots of emergent stuff and you know the, so the scope of the project helps inform you of how much you could take on at the beginning maybe oh yeah totally yes have you cracked it? Do you think you the music sits in just the right place and the and the sound sits in just the right place together uh, relationally? It's one of these things where you have an idea, you make it, and you know you're never hundred percent there. Yeah, I don't think that's even achievable. That's never achievable. Like you make the perfect food dish, but you always know that there is something that could be a little bit different. But it's still good. Like, it's still excellent. Like, you eat it, you're like, oh, man, this was brilliant. But I wish I had, you know, apple juice to go along with this <laughs> kind of thing. So it's one of those. I'm extremely happy what we achieved. And the music and sounds, they work together. And they work as intended. Like, everything is like I wanted it to be. And I'm happy about that. It's going to be a different sounding game than a lot of games because the mindset with it is different so it makes sometimes it's hard for me to listen to another game and then kind of compare it to go mecha ball because it doesn't make sense anymore because it's technically such a different thing than a lot of other games like if i play let's say i'm playing doom 2016 or whatever it's all nice and crunchy and kind of just this packet in front of you it's very nice but then Go Make Up All is different because now that I'm rolling, the music is different. I'm walking, the music is different. I'm shooting, the music is different. I'm using an ability, the music is different. It's impossible to compare anymore. They're sonically just different. They function differently. So it's going to be an interesting thing for me to see how people take that in because we are doing something different. <laughs> <laughs> And even if the sound effects themselves, uh, they are randomized and uh, they're kind of generative. So each time you shoot, let's say, a machine gun, each machine gun shoot you shoot is different from any of the previous machine gun shoots you've heard. <laughs> <laughs> There's like, I don't even know how many variations. It's talking about hundreds of thousands of variations per a single machine gun shot. Are you using a number of original samples and then slight tweaks on EQ and compression to kind of vary them up, or is it...? No. So I would record stuff like like how I think of weapons in general, but now in Go Mecha Ball is... I would look at the weapon and see if there's any moving parts in it. So if you can see, you know, a barrel move or something, 
that would be a sound element. Also, as they are sci-fi and made-up weapons, I would need to think about how is the projectile formed? Is there a motor inside the weapon? How does it work? How does it form the projectile? How does it launch the projectile? What kind of pressure might the barrel have? And stuff like that. I would actually write down these ponders and I would record sounds for each of the elements. So inside F-Mod, the event for a weapon looks pretty wild. I might have like even like 20 layers in there. Mm. Also, some of them react to each other. Like let's say the barrel boom, boom sound is does something that might affect another part of the weapon to sound a bit different. So, <laughs> so um, I would record up to, I don't even know, sometimes even like 40 different sound bites for that one single part of the weapon. And all of the weapon parts have this list of, you know, multiple sounds for that part. Ah, okay. So it's com- combinations of variations. Variable combinations. Yes. And then those randomize. And some of those might even, you know, have pitch randomization or they react to something else. And also, if you shoot the weapons, uh, as the player, the player shoots the weapons... If you don't hit anything, you just hear the shoot shot normally, the whole sequence of the weapon sounds. But if you hit an enemy, I will use the enemy sounds to duck down the shooting sounds of the player. So now you're only hearing the impact of you pressing the button, like gang, 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 gang. And now you hear like tung, 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 of the enemy. So I think it's more important that you hear what you're hitting than you're just hearing, you know, a gun shoot. Everything is about information. It sounds like you um, you stuck your head all the way down the rabbit hole and then just kept tunneling. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to video game reviews of the games you work on, as an audio person uh, and as a musician, when you read reviews of games you've made, you know, Day One and Metacritic or whatever, are you looking out for mentions of the music and audio and when they come, is it? Presumably, it's a nice feeling, but is it or is it a disappointing overall that it's it's not mentioned more often? Or how do you feel about reviews specifically when it comes to your work on games? Oh, well, I'm grinning, grinning a lot right now. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm almost like caught, caught with uh, red-handed. <laughs> yeah, um, I do like. I'm terminally online in the sense that, let's say a game gets released, I'm reading every review I can. <laughs> but I'm also reading it not just because, like, hey, what are you saying about me? Which is, of course, the main reason why I'm reading them. Because they can provide me things that, again, either me or someone from my close circles might not tell me. So, like, sometimes... A lot of the reviews, they, I would say maybe 60% don't even write about audio whatsoever. They might mention music, oh yeah, the music's pumping, and you're like, oh, okay, well. But you can read between the lines at times. Something like Badland, for example. People would be like, oh, it's like the feeling of all the materials and stuff in the game, like the game world feels alive. They're not saying audio specifically, but in the game... Everything's a silhouette. We do not tell what material it is in pretty much any other way than sound. So I'm kind of parsing from that info that they're probably talking about sound and how that's helping them guide things. 
and I would kind of gather a mental list of, hey, these things help these people. Oh, they found this interesting and it made it enjoyable. Or these things they did not like, these made them feel kind of rushed or more too hectic or something. So I kind of go through these things and I need to compare that to whatever my design has been for a project. Like, for example, Nuclear Throne was an interesting project to work on where we did a conscious decision to make the game very loud, technically very loud and distorted, because that was the design we wanted to go for. When I talked with JW, Jan Willem Niemann from, uh, from Lambier, the game designer, I talked with him, what are your inspirations? And he would even send me books and stuff of like 70s cheap C-grade sci-fi stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, read this or watch this. And I would go through them and I'm like, okay, I know what you're going for. Like, we are not doing like, you know, one-to-one ratio. This is the copy of that thing. No. What I'm doing is listening to what's the common element between all these things. And I realized it's this kind of lo-fi distortion, technically kind of wrong, kind of amateurish stuff, but then done well. Yes, yeah. That was my design with Nuclear Throne. I was like, well, okay, we'll do this. It's a risk. Like, professionally, career-wise, it was a huge risk for me as well. But also at a perfect time in a sense that indie games didn't really have that much recorded audio it was more you know bleeps and bloops kind of stuff because hmm. oh, nuclear throne launched in 2013 is that right yeah early access in 2013 yeah yeah so i mean so that's relatively early so it's kind of past that initial sort of 2008 to 2012 wave and then into the mid the mid decade stuff yeah yeah but i mean i have to remember that like at those times you might have you know lots of games coming out and like we think of like binding of isaac or limbo and stuff these are like the cream of the crop Mm. like under them there's like hundreds of thousands of games which you know were mainly bleeps and bloops and i didn't want to do that with nuclear front it's funny because that reminds me of you know the um the cd mastering wars that sort of started with the Chili Peppers Californication and how they just crunched it so loud <laughs> to, to kind of make people remember and make people put it on and go, whoa! And, you know, the, 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 that album opens with like a down, down, down. So, so were you, do you feel like you were trying to do the same with Nuclear Throne? Like, yes. let's, let's really stick in people's attention by going grungy and loud definitely yes that's awesome i mean that's an artistic decision and <laughs> yeah but technically it was scary because you know from a professional career standpoint it's a technical flaw like people would be like no you can't do this but i thought well watch me <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're going to move on to Done in 60 Seconds, where we're going to take just a minute to recommend something to each other. It could be uh, music, but it could be something else. And I think uh, up first this time is Matt. What have you got for me, Matt? This is definitely up there in terms of one of the most obscure things I've ever found. If I can take you and our dear listeners back to 1994 when a game called Burn Cycle, a point-and-click adventure, 
was released on the Philips CDI. What's interesting is the soundtrack for the game was written by a guy called Chris Whitten, who was a musician and producer who was drummed for the likes of Sir Paul McCartney in Dire Straits, and another guy called Simon Boswell, a BAFTA-nominated film composer with more than 100 credits to his name. They released a remix album called Burn Cycle Reworks, and it is genuinely one of the best remix video game albums that I've ever listened to it. Take a listen to this track called Chris VR and let me know what you think. Yeah, that is uh, that is superb. That is really, really, really good. I love that kind of um, you know thinking electronica, electronica with a with enough room for your own thoughts to go off in different directions. Um, it reminds me a bit of there was a Grand Theft Auto Four radio station, which was kind of slightly more new agey, but still that kind of slow burning um, electronica that. Uh, that I definitely love to listen to uh, every so often. So definitely like that one. What have you got for me in return? Is it going to be something as good? So Matt, there's this uh, incredible chiptune album by someone going under the uh, acronyms ZBW for a game called Demon Throttle by Doinksoft, who did uh, Ghetto Rabato and uh, recently Gumbrella, um, a Devolver studio. And um, by the time you hear this, the vinyl soundtrack pre-orders will be up via the Devolver merch store for the Dim and Throttle vinyl. Um, otherwise, you can check it out a bit on YouTube, but otherwise it's not on. The soundtrack's not on um, Spotify. It's not on Steam because the game's not on Steam because it's a physical-only game. You can only get it on Switch cartridge. And it's incredible. Jazz fusion, prog, metal traditional chiptune um, soundtrack with just incredible musicianship all across the board and uh, extremely varied despite that that traditional chiptune palette. like a chiptune version of all my favorite bands combined <laughs> and i was i was trying to work out what time signature it was in once it booted off but i just gave up i don't know if that was just the drums being on the offbeat and throwing me off or if it was just in quite an obscure time signature but i couldn't count it i've given up um but excellent find Right, I am absolutely full now of delicious chiptune prog jazz fusion. So that is all we have time for. Uh, thank you so much for listening. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe, leave us a review, share this podcast with your friends or anyone else who might be into it. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at GXM Podcast. You can find Tom on Twitter at T Quillfelt. That is Q-U-I-L-L-F-E-L-D-T. I'm a lot more simple. I am Matt with one T. Matt Ombler on Twitter. As always, if you've got any feedback or any news to share, you can hit us up over email at gxmpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and goodbye. Yes, let's. That sounded real sarcastic. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, let's jump into the news.